This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you're going to stand with us, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew or Luke chapter 7. I want to say, add my word to th- of thanks to Matthew Noble and Stephanie, uh, and welcome. So glad you guys are here. It's been a joy to welcome you and to have you. We look forward to serving with you. Amen. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18 together. This is God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting at the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For the John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open your word up to us now and close the gap that sometimes exists between what we see on these pages and our real life. We pray that by your spirit you would apply your word to your people and equip us for life and ministry that we might faithfully witness to Christ. Lord, I pray especially for those among us that are struggling spiritually, struggling to put their faith in you and rest in you. Lord, would you bring comfort and help as we look to you, as we stare at you and are reminded of how you fulfill the wonderful promises in Scripture. And Lord, if there are any that are unrepentant of their sin or trying to come to you on their own terms, Lord, would you convict Would you change lives, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Do your work among your people, we ask it, for your glory. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. The key question in this text is that one, are you the one, I think, and it is really the centerpiece of chapter 7. We've mentioned how Luke lays out chapter 7 with some examples of radical faith in Jesus at the beginning and more examples of faith at the end. And then in the middle are these statements about identity. Who is Jesus? We saw that some last week as he raised the, the widow's son. And then here, particularly as the, the disciples of John the Baptist come to him with this question, are you the one? And I'll say up front, I do think this question represents kind of a doubting impatience on the part of John the Baptist. So kind of putting my cards on the table, I think that's, that's where he's coming from. And doubts will arise in our hearts for various reasons, as you know. We will often doubt God's goodness. We will doubt uh, the, uh, our prayers, whether things in our life will really change. And in this case, doubt arises from a very faithful man. Jesus is the greatest man born of women. So we need to be clear, as one author said, that faith and doubt can find room in the same heart. Wonderful, faithful servants of God have had and do have intense seasons of doubt. That may be you this morning. And so I want to encourage you not to think of doubt as evidence that you're not a faithful Christian. I was reminded this week of the season in Francis Schaeffer's life uh, when he found himself in kind of a spiritual crisis moment. He was looking at the New Testament's description of Christian love and then comparing that with what he saw in the American church, which he described as kind of a suspicious, angry, uh, separatistic culture in the church. And so he, just, he, he said, I was torn to pieces. He was in agony in months trying to put these two things together and began to question, well, is this real? And for months he examined his beliefs. You might say he dismantled some of them and then reassembled them piece by piece. But as a result, he actually came away stronger with a greater confidence in the core claims of Christianity, that Christian truth and the Christian life are inseparable. Now, we hear about this process often today. In fact, doubt has become a bit of a movement. Deconstruction is the term that's popular. And it's not new. It's uh, really rooted in a postmodern philosophy from the 60s. But the trend that we're seeing isn't kind of examining our faith for harmful attachments that have kind of grown onto our faith that aren't biblical and then removing those that we would come away stronger and more faithful. It's quite the opposite. Often deconstruction, the way that we see it today, leads to so-called deconversion, a denial of Christianity altogether. One author observes that as of today, there are 293,000 some odd posts on Instagram uh, utilizing the hashtag deconstruction. The vast majority are from people who've deconverted from Christianity, become progressive Christians, embraced same-sex marriage and relationships, rejected core historic doctrines of the faith, or who are, are on a mission to crush white Christian patriarchy. Deconstruction has little to do with objective truth and everything to do with tearing down whatever doctrine someone believes is wrong. So we need to pay attention to our doubts, to our heart. What do we do with those doubts? 
How do we live in a world that makes doubting unbelief actually into a virtue? Could it be that if we really drilled down into those doubts, into our hearts, that our objections could be more that we simply don't like what we're reading and hearing about God or what the Bible teaches, that we would actually rather live our own way? Often our doubts come from disappointments with God. We thought we knew what God was going to do for us. We had an expectation of what life in Him was going to be like. But when the healing didn't come or the finances fell through, we're tempted to doubt that He really is the God that He claimed that He was. And that seems to be somewhat of the situation here in Luke 7 with John the Baptist. And so here's how the scene unfolds. If you look at the text, John sends two disciples to ask this very important question, are you the one? And we see this conversation in verses 18 to 23, including Jesus' response, which is kind of a non-answer. He just sort of shows them who he is. Then Jesus gives a commentary from his perspective on who John is. So John asks who Jesus is, then Jesus says who John is, verses 24 to 30. And then finally, Jesus is going to give a commentary on his generation, which is not too different than our own generation, in verses 31 to 35. So we live in a world of doubt. What should we do? I want to give us three answers from our text this morning. Three answers what to do when we live in a world of doubt. Number one, if you're taking notes, bring your doubts to Jesus. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Number two, examine your doubts. Examine your doubts. And number three, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. I want to encourage you to ask the main question of this text, of Jesus. Are you the one? And no matter what else may be nagging at you this morning or or blurring your vision, I want you to look to Jesus for the answer. Or another way to say it would be to take this first step in living in a world of doubt, bring our doubts to Jesus. That's number one. Bring our doubts to Jesus. To Jesus. Beginning in verse 18, we're just encouraged to review the context. Look there. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. We have to ask some questions. It begs two questions. What are all these things and where is John? And so these things are going to refer immediately to the miracles, the works that Jesus has been doing. He's been doing them in Capernaum and in Nain. So if you remember, he healed the centurion's uh, uh, servant who was dying. On death's door, he healed the servant with a word. He wasn't even in the presence of the man and healed him. And then he raised the widow's son. They were, the funeral procession was on its way to the tomb. And Jesus puts his hand on the bier and stops the funeral and raises the son. So the public ministry of Jesus is characterized by these kinds of, of miracles. But it's also characterized by powerful, authoritative teaching. And we saw that teaching in the Sermon on the Plain. And we've got to assume that a lot of that teaching has made its way back to John the Baptist. Maybe especially the teaching about loving your enemies struck struck him. Or the blessings of being persecuted. The reason these things had to be reported to John, of course, is because he's in prison. If you remember that parenthetic note in chapter 3, John had spoken out against Herod's sinful marriage and relationship with his brother's wife, Herodias. And so there was John rotting in prison. He's on, essentially, we know, death row. And he's hearing all this about Jesus' ministry. And so John's not unfamiliar with Jesus. He baptized Jesus back in chapter 3. He identified him as the one who's mightier than I. I can't even untie his sandal strap. 
He's going to increase. I've got to decrease. That's my purpose in life. But he also prophesied that this coming one would come in judgment. So Luke 3.17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So John sees the Messiah coming, and he sees him coming both in salvation and judgment. And that judgment includes the destruction of God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. And so John seems to be looking for that judgment on God's enemies. Well, why? Because Jesus has arrived. If John is reading Psalm 2, and he's thinking about Jesus as the Messiah, he's thinking about the one in the heaven laughing at the nations who are, who are threatening God's people. And then when he comes, he's going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king in Zion. But John hears about Jesus preaching sermons and doing miracles, which is great. That is great. But perhaps he's wondering, when is he going to get to the big stuff? When would he set the oppressive, evil Roman government right? When is he going to abolish evil, rural, evil, evil rulers like Herod that put him in prison? When is he going to put down the, the tyranny in Israel and bring about a political independence? And then on a personal note, when is he going to break me out of jail? I wonder if you've ever asked similar questions about the nature of Jesus as the Messiah, the King. John may be wondering, have I baptized the wrong guy? So he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, and here's the, the, the key question there in verse uh, 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Now, again, we don't know the, the heart and the tone behind John's question. I think um, Augustine believes that, that he's um, really just trying to teach his disciples to have faith in Jesus. He already has the faith that he's the Messiah, and he's trying to encourage them in their faith. But I think Jesus' response, the way Jesus talks, especially in verse 23, helps us to understand where John is. Look at what he says there in verse 23. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended. And that word there is, is scandalizo in Greek, where we get our word scandalized. It means to trip up or stumble or be entrapped. And that language is from Isaiah 8. 14, speaking of the Lord, and it says, and, and we will, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I think Jesus' words in verse 23 are directed to John and his disciples. Don't be offended by me, by my real purpose. Don't stumble, John, over my purposes, even if they're not what you think they should be, if they're not what you thought they should be. Of course, John is right about the Messiah and what the Messiah would do, coming in final judgment and making all things new. He's just not right about the timing, the nature of it. Jesus has come to love and to show mercy and to save and to preach the gospel. He has come for healing and for patience and forgiveness. More than that, to be the gospel himself. So, 
if John thought here that staying in prison and Jesus not burning down the Roman government was disappointing, he just needs to hang on and watch what's about to happen. Jesus is going to ultimately die at the hands of wicked men. You talk about a disappointment for a king, at least on the surface. That doesn't seem victorious in any sense. And John is not the only one who has a skewed perspective and wrong expectations about Jesus. The disciples, even after the resurrection, struggle to understand who he is. So certainly it's possible for you and I to have similar struggles, similar disappointments that are rooted in wrong expectations of who Jesus is. And so what do we do with those doubts, with those struggles? And I think it's instructive to see the way Jesus answers John's question here. It's helpful for us, it's helpful for me. Um, Look there at verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So apparently during the visit of these disciples of John, Jesus does this litany of miracles, this host of miracles in their presence. And I think this is a good summary of the kind of things that Jesus was typically doing. Many of these we've seen him do already. But, you know, Deuteronomy calls for, an, for, a, for a matter to be established. It needs to be established by two witnesses. And, and I think Luke is not unfamiliar with that. This is verifying what Jesus was actually doing. And his summary of the miracles actually identify him as the Messiah. As he, as, he, as he talks about the things that he's doing and tells these disciples what to tell John, it, it is a way of identifying himself as the Messiah because there are works of God taken from key passages in Isaiah that point to the coming one's ministry, that point to the messianic age. Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This isn't the first time Jesus has done this. He's, he's, he's read that passage in his own home synagogue in Nazareth, Isaiah 61, and then sat down and, and said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing, i.e., I am the Messiah. And they attempted to throw him off a cliff. So we should pay attention here that Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah, and then also pay attention to that phrase, that last phrase, the poor have the good news preached to them. So again, it's not just random miracles. These are, it's an identification with the Messiah, and then it's a bringing of salvation to those that are far from God. That is his focus in his first coming, in his earthly ministry. It's, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't quote the rest of Isaiah 61, verse 1, which continues to say, proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. That would have been applicable, talking to John. But he's saying it's, it's not time for that. John. At least not for you, not now. So I think it's safe to say that at some level, 
John is struggling with his expectations with who Jesus is. What kind of Messiah he would be. I wonder if you're, you can relate to that. Struggling in your own expectations. And by that I just mean that Jesus or the Lord may not be doing for us what we would want him to do. What we would expect even a deliverer to do. He may not take away a difficult situation in your life or he may not be healing a broken relationship that you really need to be healed. Or maybe he's just not doing it in the timing when you think it ought to happen. He may be deeming it best for you right now to have his power displayed in your weakness rather than in your strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He may be calling you to bear with a situation, to bear with a person that you would rather were just not in your life. But you're called to bear with them and love them, even an enemy. If we're honest, this kind of disappointment can often produce doubt, particularly of God's goodness or trustworthiness. So the question is, what do we do with those doubts? And I think this text encourages us to go directly to Jesus with them. Notice how patient Jesus is with John. He doesn't blast him for his doubt. It's a good reminder that bringing honest doubt and concern and struggle to the Lord is a welcome thing, even among God's people. He simply points John to himself. He says, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And he informs him, this is exactly what I should be doing. It's often here that we're reminded that the, the problem is with us and our doubts and our expectation, not with Jesus. So I want to encourage you, friend, brother, sister, take your doubts, take your pain, your struggle to Jesus directly to him. Look at his works and his word and his heart. Not the circumstance, not what happened at church last week or the family strife that is pressing in on you. Don't let that determine ultimately where your peace is found. The unexplained suffering. Look to Jesus and especially look to the cross. Look there to the innocent Son of God who took the wrath of God upon himself for your sin and for mine. To save us from our sin. To save us from an eternal hell that we deserve because of our rebellion. Jesus died in our place. And so we should remember as followers of Jesus that if that is the way for Jesus, if that's the way for our King, the cross before the crown, we ought not be surprised when things in our life shape out that way. When the pattern of our lives is death and then resurrection. Blessed are you when you're not offended by Jesus or Jesus' sovereign plan for your life. Not tripped up by his ways and his purposes. They're always and forever good. And so John's disciples returned to him and report what they had seen and heard. By the way, that's what witnesses do. They report what they had seen and what they had heard. What an encouragement it must have been to John, not to hear just of second and third hand, but his own disciples reporting the power of Jesus. And so then Jesus sends off his disciples and then turns to the crowd, addressing John and his doubts. And so that's the next thing we want to consider in a world of doubt, is examine our doubts. That's number two. Examine your doubts. It's almost like Jesus doesn't want the crowd to get the wrong impression of John, this great man who apparently is still trying to figure it out, who Jesus is. 
John's question was aimed at Jesus' identity, and now Jesus is going to clarify John's identity. Look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Jesus goes on to ask, what did you go out to see? Was it a prophet? He uses these rhetorical questions, again, just to make, to make a point, to describe John, really from what he isn't. He's not a reed shaken by, a wind, this, this, by the wind. Picture of a, a weak person, a weak preacher, who's easily swayed by the opinion of others. John is strong. He's, we've seen that really clearly. He's bold. He's a proclaimer of God's word. He's not a soft man, dressed in soft, luxurious clothes like you would find in a king's palace. People aren't coming out to the wilderness to see that kind of man, that kind of preacher. They're not coming out to the wilderness for the scenery. They're coming out to this wilderness where John was to see a prophet. That's what John is. He's dressed in camel's skin and, and eating locusts and honey, and he's not telling people what they want to hear. He's preaching a message of repentance. But he's not just any prophet. Verse 27, this is of he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so here the, the prophet Malachi is quoted. Malachi 3 about John's ministry. It's, prepare, it's, it's prophesying about who John would be. He's to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then, um, so because of that, because of his role in salvation history, there is no one who is born of woman. By the way, that's everybody. No one who is born of woman that is greater than he. He is the greatest. Now, Jesus is not pointing to some intrinsic merit on John that makes him better than everyone else. Actually, he's pointing to his proximity to himself, his proximity to Jesus whose intrinsic righteousness and merit is wholly unique. It's because John is the last of the prophets to point to Jesus. If you think of the prophets like a long line of running a, a, a track race, they're, they're passing the baton, passing the baton, and the very last leg is John the Baptist, and he passes the baton to the Son of God himself. There is no greater role. There is no greater privilege. He is the greatest and when, in doing this, Jesus is drawing a comparison between the old covenant era and the new that brings in the kingdom. Where he says the least in the kingdom, the very last person in the kingdom that is coming, that I am bringing in, is greater than this guy. Greater than the best man who's ever been born. The greatest man to ever lived pointed to the kingdom, but even the least in the kingdom who's actually in, who enjoys the benefits of a kingdom citizenship is greater, who actually enters is greater than John. So John belongs to a time of promise. And as we look at this, this passage, we look at the Gospels, we're seeing the pages of salvation history turn in our midst. He belongs to an age of promise, and the coming kingdom brings in an age of fulfillment. Jesus come to inaugurate, to bring in his kingdom. And the last and least in that kingdom is greater than the greatest and first on the planet who is outside of the kingdom. Now, I don't think this is an indication at all that the prophets or the Old Testament saints aren't saved. 
We know they're saved through their faith in the coming Messiah. Jesus later in Luke 13 gives like a little illustration of this. It's kind of a snapshot into hell. And those in hell having some sort of view of heaven. He says in Luke 13, 28, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves will be cast out. So John is like a bridge figure from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment. He points to the day of the king because the king has come. And blessed are those that submit to his kingdom. That would now receive forgiveness of sins, amnesty. All who would come in repentance and trust in the king will not be judged for their sins. They will receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. A relationship with God, acceptance before God, imputed, reckoned righteousness, eternal life, unending joy. John represents a shadow of these promises, but Jesus is saying the substance is here. So that even of those who are born of women, they would be born again. Not just of a woman, but of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that these things are things in which the prophets long to look. Angels long to look. 1 Peter 1, 10-12. And so notice the response as Jesus unpacks this to the crowd. Picking up in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. It's not uncommon in the Gospels to see this kind of response. Um, one group hears and declares God's just, the other rejects his purposes. One group hears and accepts the message by faith, the other turns from the truth. One group declares that God is just, and we need to understand that implies that he is just in the assessment that we ourselves are sinners. And that, that's why they were baptized by John, isn't it? A baptism of repentance. God is just in his, in his assessment and his truth telling of us as sinners. And we need repentance of our sins. So they acknowledged that they were guilty and that God was justified in condemning them for their sin. And so they confessed their sin and repented, both inwardly and, and outwardly. And listen, even the tax collectors... Isn't that an interesting little note, parenthetical note? Don't you love that? And the tax collectors too. The tax collectors were there. They rejoiced. Maybe you have a reference to even the least in the kingdom. The ones who had the longest shot of getting in. The most hated. They realize now the reality of grace. They praise God for his grace. But not the religious leaders. The Pharisees and the lawyers, notice the way that he puts it, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They were not baptized. Such a visual illustration of their own pride. They didn't think they needed to repent. They didn't come to God on their own terms. They, they would only come on, 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 he didn't come to God on his terms, only on their own terms. They prided themselves on their obedience to the law. And since they rejected the one who was the forerunner to the Messiah, they would also reject the Messiah. They would choose to live for themselves. I think this is just a helpful reminder, a picture for us as it relates to spiritual doubt and the inner conflict that often comes through seasons of doubt. We should examine the source of our doubts. Okay, 
What's behind this struggle? What's behind my doubt? Maybe it's I'm becoming overly familiar with the things of God. And it just is, it's a routine, it's a rote exercise for me to come to church, to come to Bible study, listen to sermons, think about what I'm going to have for lunch. C.S. Lewis warns particularly those who are, who are in um, what he calls, who are religious professionals, like the Pharisees. He says, sometimes sacred things may become profane by becoming matters of the job. And so of all people, the religious leaders should have had their hearts softened by the word of God, but they have the opposite effect. They're callous and cold toward the Messiah. What a warning for us, for those who teach and preach the word. Perhaps it's that we're, we're not giving ourselves to think deeply about God and sin, and so we're being blown off, off our center by the winds of our day. John Owen said that, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. A man came up to Kent Hughes once after a sermon. He writes and said, I really can't swallow what you're saying about all this sin. And he said, brother, you don't have to swallow it. It's already within you. A little preacher joke. So we should examine our doubts. Are we seeking to live on our own terms or on God's? And when it doesn't work out, the things that we expect would work out, do we blame him? Is sin and self-rule really kind of the root of our problem? Again, we must turn to Jesus. He calls us to turn from our sin and to trust him. How wonderful that the gospel is a free gift for us to receive and not to earn. Friend, have you done that? Have you trusted Christ? You personally put your faith in Christ. Have you sought to follow him? Publicly, Have you proclaimed that publicly through believer's baptism? That would be confirmed here in the local church, a public sign of that commitment. Have you joined a local church where you're going to say, put your life in with a bunch of other professing believers who are working together in this local outpost of the kingdom of God to glorify him here on earth? Where you're going to commit to serve others and love others and, and be held accountable by others. What's keeping you from following Jesus? God's terms are gracious and kind. We come to him through his son who died for us, who rose from the grave. There is no other way. And the Pharisees are are sad reminders of what looking for another way, another savior would bring. Disaster, emptiness. And so if you have doubts, bring them to Jesus. Examine them in the light of our own sin and the good news that Jesus offers to us. Finally, let me encourage you One last thing, in a world of doubt, let me encourage you to doubt your doubts. Number three, doubt your doubts. So unbelief is not a virtue. Uh, Standing on the sidelines of life, kind of paralyzed by doubt, isn't kind of a high level of religious transparency or spirituality or open-mindedness. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, he said, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. That's what Luke wants for us, isn't it, as we read his gospel. He begins that way. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke wants us to have certainty 
about Jesus Christ and then to doubt our doubts. And if we have doubts, we've come to the right place. We come to the Gospels. We come to see Jesus. And understanding that we do live in a world that, that, that kind of uh, glamorizes this, that, that, that is a world of doubt. Very similar to the one Jesus ministered in. Look at the way he profiles it in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation to, and what are they like? By the way, before he gets into this, this, this parable, quick background. In Jesus' day, boys and girls loved to imitate what they saw adults doing. It's probably similar to what, what we do, similar to today. But mainly what they saw happening in terms of activity were weddings and funerals. And so, again, there's no smartphones, there's no Playstations. Uh, so the kids are imitating what they're seeing, and they're playing, pretending that they're doing weddings and funerals. Sometimes they played weddings, which included lots of dancing around. Boys and girls would pretend to get married and then have a party. Sometimes they played a sad game, pretending to, to be in a funeral. And so they would sing sad songs, and then they would pretend to cry. But even when they were doing this pretending, and kids, you probably know people like this, you have friends like this maybe at the playground, some children don't want to play no matter what you're playing. In fact, they decided they don't want to play at all. They're going to go home and go somewhere else. And so that's what Jesus is drawing on here in verse 32. The, the, the other children, they see that, and they're going to kind of give this chant, this sing-song taunt from the Jewish playground. Verse 32 they are like children, this age, this generation, like children sitting at the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So Jesus paid attention, even to the nursery rhymes of his day. But more than that, he knew the spiritual condition of his generation. So this is his point. It, would, it wouldn't matter who brought the good news to them, to these people, to this generation, or how they brought it, they would not receive it. So he uses John's ministry and his own ministry as evidence. Verse 33, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John is an ascetic, doesn't eat bread, doesn't drink wine, he yells a lot. He dresses funny, maybe he smells funny. He's too primitive, he's too fiery. The tone police would be all over John the Baptist. In fact, they conclude that he has a demon. If only his delivery were more seeker-sensitive and culturally in tune, it would be better, we would receive it. But the reason we know that's not true is because what they do to Jesus. They criticize Jesus for the opposite problem. He's eating and drinking. They call him a glutton and a drunkard. He partied too much. He made friends with the wrong people, with sinners. He's too laid back. He's too grace-focused. So what's happening? John is playing funeral. Jesus is playing wedding. And there's a lot of eschatological stuff we could go into. We won't. Jesus is playing wedding. And the religious leaders are saying, we're not going to play at all. So friends, here's the reality. When we're committed to our sin and to our doubt and to our unbelief, we will never be satisfied. There will always be a reason to reject the message. Some folks will always find fault. The church is too judgmental. The church is too soft on sin. It's not friendly enough. It's a little too friendly. 
I've actually heard that. Christians are too intellectual or just too simple-minded. The church is too big, it's too small, too serious, or too emotional. But in reality, deep down, they want to play by their own rules. They want to set the agenda, not God. No matter who's preaching, who's loving them, it could be David Pallison, sweet and tender. It could be Paul Washer, fiery. Doesn't matter. Self wins the day. This is aptly named the parable of the brats. And of course the irony is that they're offended by the very thing that is their only hope. That Jesus is a friend to sinners. They thought that they were better than these friends that Jesus hung out with. Perhaps better than Jesus. But they were in desperate need of Jesus' love and grace. Jesus ends here in verse 35 this way. He says, yet in comparison, wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, wisdom, God's wise ways, is shown to be right by her children, by God's people. So we see people even today, right here at UPBC, who have experienced the forgiveness of sins and new life, who accept the blessing of salvation that God has given them in Christ, who do struggle, who struggle with doubt, but seek to encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near, who assemble together with the body to bear with one another's burdens, and we would help each other bring our doubts and our sin and our deep pain to Jesus Christ. And we can approach him with great certainty and even doubt our doubts, our fleeting feelings and ups and downs, the focus on the temporary, the current. Now, friends, our focus is on eternity, on the promises fulfilled forever. In short, we're seeking to be like the man in Luke 6. Remember what Jesus said about hearing his words and doing them? Not just walking away, but putting them into practice. A person who does that is like a man who's building a house on a rock, who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke again, that house could not shake it because it had been well built. Friends, Jesus is the rock. No doubt, no suffering, no pain can harm us if we solidly built our life on him. But friends, that is a double-edged sword. If we don't trust him and build our life on him, we'll actually be offended by him and stumble over him. Peter makes it really clear in 1 Peter 2, 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The offense of the gospel is what saves us. It's the cross the reality of our need for atonement because of our sin and the victory of Christ over the grave. He is alive and he is a great friend to sinners. Blessed is the one who's not offended by him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would draw your people now, even as we prepare our own hearts for the Lord's table. Draw us in. Remind us of the glory of the gospel. Help us to, to sink our anchor deep in the certainty, the ironclad promises that you have fulfilled on the cross, empty tomb, ascension, and that you are coming again to judge the quick and the dead. 
Would you build up your people for your glory? Strengthen us. Remind us of these wonderful blessings of being a part of the kingdom, the covenant blessings that we're about to enjoy even together now. We pray in Jesus' name.